warehouse. London was a socialist, uh, became famous when he wrote stories about the Yukon, the gold rush in the Yukon, became one of the highest paid writers in the world. A lot of books famous, of course. Uh, people remember Call of the Wild, White Fang, but he wrote a lot of other novels too. One called The Iron Heel about a fascist takeover of the United States. And he wrote a novel called Martin Eden, which was um, probably one of his, mo his most autobiographical novels. And in Martin Eden, he describes the work, a job that he and one other guy have, uh, washing and ironing shirts for the members, the rich members of the, of the uh, men's club, of a men's club. Later on, uh, London would found, one of the founders of the Bohemian Club, which quickly quickly became a playground time for uh, very rich people like Henry Kissinger, etc. But this this is kind of a backbreaking the type of, of thing that, that workers would do. Um, and you would get a job like this and you get a job like this and you would have to, you know, you, you would have to work your whole life just about. I mean, and I don't mean all your years. I remember, I mean, your entire day. So this is this is how it goes. It was exhausting work carried on hour after hour at top speed out of the broad verandas of the hotel. Men and women in cool white sipped ice drinks and kept their circulation down. But in the laundry, that's the job that these two guys, Martin and this other guy, are doing. The air was sizzling. The huge stove roared red hot and white hot, while the irons moving over the damp cloth set up clouds of steam. The heat of these irons was different from that used by housewives. An iron that stood the ordinary test of a wet finger was too cold for Joe and Martin and such test was useless. They went wholly by holding the irons close to their cheeks, gauging the heat by some secret mental process that Martin admired but could not understand. When the fresh irons proved too hot, they hooked them on iron rods and dipped them into cold water. This again required a precise and subtle judgment. A fraction of a second too long in the water and the fine and silken edge of the paper proper heat was lost. And Martin found time to marvel at the accuracy he developed, an automatic accuracy, 
founded upon criteria that were machine-like and unerring. But there was little time to marvel. All Martin's consciousness was concentrated in that work, ceaselessly active, head and hand, an intelligent machine. All that constituted him a man was devoted to furnishing that intelligence. There was no room in his brain for the universe and its mighty problems. All the broad and spacious corridors of his mind were closed and hermetically sealed. The echoing chamber of his soul was a narrow room, a conning tower, whence were directed his arm and shoulder muscles, his ten nimble fingers, and the swift-moving iron along its steaming path, steaming path in broad, sweeping strokes. Just so many strokes, and not one more, just so far with each stroke, and not a fraction of an inch further, rushing along interminable sleeves, sides, backs, and tails, and tossing the finished shirts without rumpling into the receiving frame. And even as his hurrying soul tossed, it was reaching for another shirt. This went on hour after hour, while outside all the world swooned under the overhead California sun, but there was no swooning in that superheated room. The cool guests on the verandas needed clean linen. The sweat poured from Martin. He drank enormous quantities of water, but so great was the heat of the day and of his exertions that the water sluiced through the inner seas of his flesh and out of all his pores. Always at sea, except at rare intervals, the work he performed had given him ample opportunity to commune with himself. The master of the ship had been lord of Martin's time, but here the manager of the hotel was lord of Martin's thoughts as well. He had no thoughts save for the nerve-wracking, body-destroying toil. Outside of that, it was impossible to think. He did not know that he loved Ruth. She did not even exist, for his driven soul had no time to remember her. It was only when he crawled to bed at night or to breakfast in the morning that she asserted herself to him in fleeting memories. This is hell, ain't it? Joe remarked once. So this was a passage from a novel by Jack London called Martin Eden. And it brings us to the subject of alienation. Okay, and this is an article. I'll read the whole thing. It's not too long. By a guy named Chris, Chris Wright on uh, popularresistance.org. Capitalism, Socialism, and Existential Despair. Decades ago, Edward Said remarked that contemporary life is characterized by a generalized condition of homelessness. Decades earlier, Heidegger had written that homelessness is coming to be the destiny of the world. 
Around the same time, fascists were invoking the themes of blood and soil, nation, race, community as intoxicating antidotes to the mass anonymity and depersonalization of modern life. Twenty or thirty years later, the New Left, in its Port Huron statement, lamented the corruption and degradation of such values as love, freedom, creativity, and community. And as we just read, Martin Eden had no time for any of these things as he worked. Port Huron's statement said, loneliness and estrangement, isolation describe the vast distance between man and today and men today. These dominant tendencies cannot be overcome by better personnel management nor by improved gadgets but only when a love of man, that is people, humanity, overcomes the idolatrous worship of things by man. Over a hundred years earlier, Karl Marx had already understood it was capitalism that was responsible for all this collective anguish. All fixed, fast-frozen relations are swept away, he wrote in the Communist Manifesto. All new-formed ones became antiquate, become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. Home, community, the family, one's very relation to oneself, all are mediated by money commodity function, reification, exploitation of one form or another. And now here we are in 2019, when the alienation and atomization have reached such a state that it seems as if the world is in danger of ending. The phenomenology, the structure of feeling, of living in this society is that everything is transient and up in the air. Human survival is in question. A hectored, bureaucratized anonymity chases us from morning till night. Nothing really matters. No one gets their just desserts. Young people are refraining from having children. There is certainly no collective sense of belonging. That's long gone. We are l'étrangers, passively consuming distractions as we wait for the other shoe to drop. The truth is that only socialism or an economically democratic society in which there is no capitalist class could possibly usher in a world in which the ex existentialist howl of Camus and Sartre and uh, Allen Ginsberg and so many others didn't have universal resonance. Mass loneliness and the gnawing sense of meaninglessness are not timeless conditions. They're predictable expressions of a commoditized, privatized, bureaucratized civilization. Do away with the agent of enforced commoditization, privatization, hyper-bureaucratization for the sake of social control, the capitalist class, that is. And you'll do aware with the despair that arises from these things.
it's true that the current suicide epidemic and the mental illness epidemic around the world have more specific causes than simply capitalization, capitalism. They have to do with high unemployment, deindustrialization, underfunded hospitals and community outreach programs, job-related stress, social isolation, etc. In other words, they have to do with a particularly vicious and virulent forms that capitalism takes on in the neoliberal period. Long before this period, widespread disaffection and mental illness characterized capitalist society. Now, in the light of global warming and ecological destruction, it's possible that humanity won't last much longer anyway, in which case capitalism will never be overcome and our collective existential anguish is perfectly appropriate. <clears throat> but nothing is certain at this point except that we have a moral imperative to do all we can to fight for socialism. By any means necessary is what people demand, justice demands, and it offers the only hope that we, even we privileged people, not to mention the less privileged supermajority, can know what it is to truly have a home. Hear, hear. All right, well, we spoke about earlier spoke about Golden Land's working hands. Fred Glass's monumental history of the California labor movement. We're going to play part one today. Step by step, it's called. That's the longest march These are union members in 1949 going to a meeting. They will vote to end a strike and accept an offer from employers, making them the highest paid warehouse workers in the country. They have a right to hold this meeting. They have a right to have been on strike. But workers had to fight to get those rights. And they had to fight to keep them. Working people are often proud of the work they do. They should be. They built this state and this country with their hands and sweat, and occasionally with their blood. Steel workers and their families near Chicago, Memorial Day, 1937, wanted a union. 10 families were given a new reason to remember Memorial Day. This was not an unusual occurrence in the 1930s. 
In California, for instance, longshoremen Howard Sperry and Nick Bordeaux, a cook, lost their lives to bullets in the back, sparking the 1934 San Francisco general strike. Of course, that was a long time ago. No employer today abuses workers the way they used to be treated. Near Los Angeles, a raid has freed garment workers so desperate, so trapped, that perhaps only one word describes what they endured, slavery. With sewing machines in the garage, the living room, and the dining room, the undocumented workers said they were forced to work 120 hours a week for less than $2 an hour. The Immigration and Naturalization Service knew about the alleged operation more than three years ago, but took no enforcement action. And when workers today exercise their legal right to protest, we would imagine they are treated with proper respect. Who are these people? And what motivated them to choose to stand up time and again for their rights? Some have been famous. But for most, we have no statues, no official memory, perhaps a glimpse of blurry faces without names. These are the ones we speak of when we say, they sacrificed and sometimes gave their lives back in the day so that we might have rights in our workplaces and communities. If we are interested in protecting the inheritance they left us, it would help to know who they were. To look at California history from the perspective of its working people and their labor movement from then to now.
Okay, that was the uh, introduction to uh, Golden Lands Working Hands, a history of the California labor movement by uh, Fred Glass. Glass is uh, formerly communications director of the California Federation of Teachers. Let's look and see what's going on now on the labor beat. Labor and Love Radio. And if you look on Labor and Love Radio, you'll find these and other stories. Support striking AT&T workers, the communications workers of America. And this is good news. The AT&T Southeast strike has ended. CWA members' spirit and solidarity and your support showed the company that we would not stop until they bargained in good faith. Okay. So they, they've gotten to the table. So we'll see how that comes out. See if they gain anything. Here's a, a young woman. Iran has sentenced journalist and activist Marzieh Amiri to 10.5 years in prison and 148 lashes. Charging her with collusion against national security, propaganda against the state, and disturbing public order. Amiri was arrested along with other labor activists as they protested in Tehran on May 1st, International Workers' Day. The Committee to Protect Journalists condemned the harsh sentence and said Iranian authorities are escalating their threats against journalists who report on economic issues and the country's ongoing crisis. Amiri's reporting on the economic hardships of Iranian citizens is not a criminal act, nor does it warrant this vindictive and violent response. She should be released immediately. You ever wonder what the problem with Congress is? In Congress, 51% of the people are millionaires. In the regular population, 5% of the people are millionaires. In Congress, 77% of the people are white men. White men in America and the population at large, 31%. Women in Congress, 20% of our Congress people, senators and representatives, are women. In America, 51% of the people are women. And the people in Congress, two-thirds, 67%, are 55 years old or older. In America... 28% are 55 years old or older. So 
So who are they representing? They're representing white men, huh? White men over 55, inordinately, inordinately. There's something by a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book called Nickel and Dimed, which was turned into a play in which she, you know, as sort of a privileged uh, white woman, uh, leftist, journalist, decided to see for herself what it would be like to live on minimum wage jobs. And if you want a real dose of what it's really like, like that Martin Eden piece, just get nickel and dime. It's not that long. It's a good and easy read, but it's very, very um, problematic. It raises uh, all kinds of questions. And this is what she said in, in that book, one thing. Shame at our own dependence on the underpaid labor of others. When someone works for less pay than she can live on, when she goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, then she has made a great sacrifice for you. The working poor are the major philanthropists of our society. Hear, hear. What trickle down? Worker pay is up 12% since 1978. How much do you think CEO pay is up? 940%. 940%. 80, 78 times what workers' salaries have raised. Dolores Huerta, among eight arrested at a protest demanding raise for health care workers. The, the comment of Labor and Love Radio, Dolores, te queremos. Demanding better pay for 500 health care workers who haven't had a raise in only a decade. In Fresno, California. Huerta, who is 89 years old, joined members of the Service Employees International Union as they chanted and rang cowbells outside the doors of a closed session of the Fresno County Board of Supervisors. Okay, one more thing now before we go. I wanted to... have Francesca Ramsey talk about ID, how voter ID law, laws explain structural, raci structural racism. People are inclined to say, well, what's wrong with that? Making people identify themselves. Let's see. Right?
In case you haven't noticed, the presidential election is almost here. Soon, everybody can go to the polls and cast their ballots to decide the fate of America. Well, almost everybody. Since 2008, 10 states have successfully implemented strict voter ID laws that are meant to prevent voter fraud, but in reality, make it harder for a lot of people to vote. Three of them make you show either a photo ID, like a driver's license, or non-photo ID, like a bill with your name on it, before you can vote at the polls. The other seven will only let you you vote if you have a photo ID. So depending on where you live, what you need to do to vote in our national election can be totally different. America! So why have these laws popped up recently? Well, in theory, they prevent voters from impersonating someone else. That way we can all feel confident in the accuracy of the election process without worrying that some kid is sneaking into the polls wearing mustache glasses. Yo, 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 fake IDs, vote twice. But here's the thing, the kind of fraud voter ID laws claim to prevent practically never happens. In fact, a report concluded that voter impersonation is rarer than being struck by lightning. Even foxnews.com reported that this kind of voter fraud rarely happens. Wait, did I just agree with Fox News? Oh my god! So why even bother having voter ID laws at all? Mmm, good old-fashioned voter suppression with a dash of racism and classism for good measure. Requiring voters to have ID seems like a harmless precaution until you realize the majority of people lacking ID are either elderly, poor, and aren't white. And frequently, they're all three. Statistically, African-American and Latinx voters are much less likely than white voters to have the qualifying IDs required by states with voter ID laws. They're also disproportionately likely to be low income. Even when a state offers free photo ID, these residents may not be able to afford the underlying documents, transportation, or time required to get one. Many Republicans pushing for voter ID claim the laws have nothing to do with race or class. But in 2013, North Carolina County Precinct GOP Chair Don Yelton told The Daily Show that if the state's new voter ID rule hurts a bunch of lazy blacks who just want the government to give them everything, so be it. Tell us how you really feel, Don. And speaking of North Carolina, they passed a law that imposed strict photo ID requirements on voters, in addition to ending voter registration outreach programs that historically increased black voter turnout. Thankfully, this past July, a federal appeals court actually struck down North Carolina's voter ID laws claiming they targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. See, voter ID laws are a classic example of structural racism, which is what makes racism different from prejudice. Prejudice is the individual dislike of a class of people based on a superficial characteristic or stereotype. Racism is racial prejudice plus structural oppression and power that negatively impacts a group. Structural racism often exists in the form of policies or laws that may or may not seem overtly racist, but ultimately cause negative consequences for people of color. Pop quiz! What's the best way to make sure racist laws stay on the books and new rules aren't put into place? Ooh, I know, make it really difficult for people of color to vote. And that has a long history in America. After the Civil War, the 15th Amendment was ratified, making it illegal to deny a male citizen the right to vote based on race. But that didn't stop election officials from falsely telling black voters they'd gotten the date wrong or that they were in the wrong polling place. Other voters were told they had to pass a literacy test first. Some were even forced to recite the entire Constitution. Really? Who can do that without Google? 
Fast forward to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. After the violent attack by state troopers on peaceful activists protesting in Selma, Alabama, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, which explicitly made voter discrimination illegal. Because of the act, turnout of black voters increased tremendously. Of course, not everyone was happy about this. Some states took issue with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which required states with a history of voter discrimination to seek federal approval before making changes to voter laws. This was basically the federal government's way of looking at states who've been shady towards voters in the past and letting them know, we see you. But in 2013, in the case of Shelby County versus Holder, lawmakers argued enough time had passed that it was no longer fair to make these states undergo the extra approval. Because, you know, racism is over. The Supreme Court agreed. So after Shelby versus Holder, states like Alabama were free to change election laws without approval from the Justice Department. And many of them took advantage of this to create the voter ID laws we see today. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who dissented from the decision, said, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And when it comes to racism, it's still raining a lot. So why does all this matter? Well, beyond ensuring every American has the right to vote, the key to ending structural racism is by replacing it with a better structure. It isn't just about people changing their racist behaviors, although that's certainly part of it. It's also about reassessing the way those behaviors get written into the very laws on which our country stands. And if you're not sure what you need to do to vote in your state, our friends John and Hank Green put together a great YouTube channel called How to Vote in Every State. You should also check out mtvselectthis.com to learn more about the election. We'll put links to both sites in the description box so you can make sure your voice is heard this November. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Okay, that was Francesca Ramsey. Time for us to get out of here now and make way for Scotto and flat black plastic. And I want to go out with something from Carlos Santana. Let's see. Samba Pati. This is the B signing off. Remember Mutiny, it's all happening down here at Mutiny Radio. We got art. We got radio. We got video. We got comedy. A community arts center, Mutiny Radio, corner of 21st Street in Florida, 2781 21st is the address. Come on down and find your voice at Mutiny. And this is the Labor and Love Show signing off. The comment of Labor and Love is, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Labor and Love says, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, 
you're on the menu. And Labor and Love Radio cautions you, never but never let anyone into your house who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Hello to everybody out there. Sylvia Salina, Yaman and Vita. Vita, everybody, you know who you are. Have a good week and good work. This is The Bee signing off. For the mere price of a spot of tea and crumpets, comedians who remain after initial sets are invited to perform feats of improvisation. Me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> My friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and files and files of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for... <laughs> it's in duty, this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks, you know, <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcast and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday 8 to 10 down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. <laughs>
right, good last testing. So, so if you're in your car and you're listening to one radio station, you need radio doing, station? You're throwing all, all the others. They are, they are 3D in, on all frequencies, and you keep them. So just listen to, to one specific six. Saturday, Saturday to two? And you leave the sound quality, quality good, and you understand everything that's playing. playing. However, however, if your radio, radio is not fine too, too, you might need two or two or three or more stage stations at the same time. time. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find Counter Offer, offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamylicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Wendy's Bar at 800 South Van Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco.
Morning. You're listening to Song and Bone at Radio Valencia.fm. That was Todd Rundgren with the track Marlene from his Something Anything album. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Happy Sunday. It's a cold and foggy one here in San Francisco. Anyway, I've got a lot of great music packed into the next two hours, so without delay, let's listen. This is Casey Shea. 
curses the beloved one flees lover beloved from countries above each one There's a rifle out back smoking cigarettes He don't ever really feel like talking It don't matter what she says And the bird is always dreaming out the window Looking at that 
hear my jacket just now. Sorry about that. Uh, that was Laurie McKenna, and the song was The Bird in the Rifle from her album, The Bird in the Rifle. And that song uh, gives me the chills every time I hear it. Before that, we heard Susan Vega uh, with Lover Beloved from her Lover Beloved songs from an evening with Carson McCullers' album, and that song was co-written by Duncan Sheik. We also heard The Flaming Lips uh, with The Sound of Failure, Kevin Morby with the Dead, They Don't Come Back, uh, Robert Lester Folsom with April Suzanne from his Music and Dreams album. It's been a few weeks since we've heard Robert Lester Folsom, and I think that's a few weeks too many. And at the start, we heard 
Chop Suey by Casey Shea. All right, you're listening to Song and Bone at Radio Valencia.fm. And uh, yeah, I'm going to make some more noise with my jacket. My apologies again. Uh, up next, uh, we're going to hear from Israel Nash. And uh, thank you, Jody, for turning me on to his music a couple of years back. Um, if you haven't checked them out, the album Israel Nash's Silver Season is a spectacular album. And here's a cut from that album. Enjoy.
Driving along town after town, toll after toll. Dick's paying up to the great southwest if you get her. She appears in his dreams. But in his car and in his arms, a dream can be anything. A cheap sunset on a television set could upset her. Sally went down to Peru with a boy who played lonely music on kazoo through her window. Tony played the blue kazoo as they.
Money makes the world go round when you have it. But what if you find yourself down in blue? From the 
it's it's more whole actually. Whole. It's whole. As in holes. Huh? Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. Like ho ho.
was Deer Hunter with Spring Hall Convert. We also heard David Bowie from the Hunky Dory album uh, with the track Andy Warhol. Before that, we heard the Splinter Angelic by South San Gabriel and the classic from Charlie Rich, The Most Beautiful Girl. And we also, uh, just before that, heard once again the Flat Five, a little supergroup from Chicago, Illinois that I could nerd out over, but, well, look them up. And the track was Blue Kazoo. Um, pardon me, I lost my place. Uh, let's see, we also heard from Wilco. We heard the song Hummingbird, and at the top we heard, once again, Israel Nash with A Coat of Many Colors. You're listening to Song and Bone at Radio Valencia.fm. Hope you're having a relaxing morning, and I hope the music is helping. All right. Uh, this is a song that uh, I have loved for some years now. Let's see, it came out in 1997, believe it or not. It is Buffalo Daughter, and the track is Daisy. Enjoy.